You will note that I have, in fact, pursued all these options in a hierarchical progression, and I confess this is because the mathematics of that particular solution were especially aesthetically promising. I mention this not because it is important that you should know it, but because it is the only example of the scale of my IQ advantage over you that you actually may understand. Questions? There are no questions. Professor Derrick has a very loud voice, and his bearing, presumably chosen from a number of distinct ways of presenting himself to us, does not invite attempts at humour or suggest that he is particularly fond of the funnies. Derrick is ageless and calm, and it seems he may not strictly belong to the same species as the rest of us. It would be better if he were dumpy or badly groomed, but. No doubt, resulting from a string of life, quality, work, output formulae, he is rugged, in reasonable shape, and has neat, ordinary hair. He looks like the kind of Rhodes Scholar who could appear on the cover of both GQ and Forbes. Derek shoots me a glance which says that this is him going with option A for the moment. I hasten to take notes in a bold, round hand which can be read upside down. But my writing deteriorates as I actually start paying attention. Did you know, says Professor Derrick, that we live in a narrow corridor of space? That if the Earth occupied an orbit only little different from the one it does, we would not exist at all. I did know this, but Professor Derrick was speaking rhetorically, or wants to be sure that everyone else knows too, because he goes on to explain. Essentially, what he says is that the Earth is a kind of a state agent's wet dream of happy location. It is close enough to the sun to draw energy from it to power biochemical reactions such as photosynthesis, without being so close that it catches fire and explodes. At the same time, it is not so far out that the atmosphere freezes and falls to the ground, which is physically entirely possible and a very nasty idea indeed. Not least because it reminds everyone in the room of the middle chamber of Project Albumen, and the man called Tyler, whose job is to go in there and scrape careless persons off the walls before they thaw out and go all slushy. The world we inhabit is balanced between the sun and the inky gulf of space. If we one day cease to exist, what will be remarkable is that we were ever here at all. Excellent. Then here, says Professor Derrick, is the hard part, and we lean forward and engage the last bits of brain power we have left over, and prepare for a real poser. Professor Derrick turns and pulls down from the ceiling of the room a white projection screen. It is one of the modern perforated kind, not the old ones which doubled as flypaper, and the projector is sleek and small and expensive. It is therefore something of a letdown when the image projected on the screen is a red circle and a blue circle with a purple bit where they overlap. Red and blue says Professor Derrick, on top of one another, producing purple. Yes. The next image is in fact two. On the left is a series of blobs and wiggles. On the right is a collection of blibs and woggles. Neither image is in any way a picture of anything. We wait for Professor Derrick to say that this is a mistake, 
that these are finger paintings by his infant daughter. He does not. He presses a button, and the images slide together and become quite obviously a silhouette of a cowboy on a piebald horse. The world we see is a composite. It is an alloy. It is, says Professor Derrick. In case anyone has not grasped at this point that our world is one thing made of several things, one thing made of several things, okay? It is a little annoying to be treated as a moron by this guy, but on the other hand, he probably has difficulty distinguishing between people who are actually very stupid and people who are just significantly less intelligent than he is. It is not just. Balanced between opposing forces, it is the overlap of these forces. These things, what you might call elements or essences, if you're of a historical turn of mind, are on the one hand what we refer to as matter or energy, depending on what shape it's in and how it's behaving at the time, and on the other, information. Matter or energy exists. Information tells matter or energy how to behave and what to do. It does matter. Professor Derrick pauses for a moment. May I assume, he says, that from this point on, when I say matter, you will understand that I also mean energy. We nod. Very well. Information then does matter. In the sense that it is the organizing principle without which matter simply cannot exist. Without matter, there is no universe, and there is no place to do anything. Without information, matter withers away, vanishes, and gradually, even the memory fades. It won't dissipate entirely, of course, but it becomes slippery. Professor Derrick seems to find that idea poetic. The guy on my left finds it awesome. He is right, but I don't think he knows it. Information is what gives shape and stability to the universe. Remove it, and you get a perfect circle of absence—a space where there's nothing, because the matter and energy there doesn't know how to behave any more, and I cannot help but imagine it sulking. Simply ceases to exist, like the little toy soldiers in the laboratory downstairs. Professor Derrick and his team, by dint of his enormous intellect and considerable innovative powers, and their collective technological know-how, have created a sort of holy grail of bombs, or at least, they have created the science necessary to create the bomb. The engineering, as ever, is playing catch-up, which is why they annihilated the side of the tank as well as the toy soldiers, and why General George spent yesterday afternoon in his office wearing a uniform jacket and a pair of fluffy slippers. But any time soon, they will be able to produce a controlled editing of the world within a discrete area, stripping out the information and leaving nothing behind, not even regret. They will have made the perfect weapon. They will be able to make the enemy go away. My training turns out to be split between sessions with Professor Derrick, dealing with the necessary basic understanding of his theory, 
field radius, energy interactions, overlap issues, delivery systems, and learning how to be a military officer. The latter implies learning in the first place the rudiments of how to be a fighting man, military history being full of people who thought it did not, and these people quite often being associated with heroic, bloody idiocy and words like rout and last stand. Fighting man rather than soldier, because the term soldier is contentious. Several of our instructors are marines who use soldier only to convey very deep contempt. A few others are technically airmen, in that they are high-altitude, low-opening jumpers for the special air commandos, and these regard the marines and the army with equal disdain because they don't include as part of their routine instruction any information about breathing in low oxygen environments or what to do if your parachute doesn't open. I would have assumed there wasn't a great deal to do except pray for a subsequent failure of local gravity, but apparently there is a method for unscrambling a parachute which can actually keep you alive in 43% of cases, which has to be better than the odds of not bothering to try. These gentlemen and ladies take us out for extremely long runs and over-assault courses, which are, of course, grueling and cold and miserable. The chief misery is actually boredom. Wobbling legs and ravaged muscles become numb. Even pain becomes commonplace. But the business of running miles and miles each day on the same track with the same bargain basement insults flying at you is ghastly because it is dull like nothing else you have experienced. The instructors are probably bored too, and they channel that into cliched aggression and obligatory howls of fury. And when we are bored into some kind of military shape, able to run in full pack without sinking to our knees, we are handed over to Ronnie Chung, who regards everyone in the world, apart from Ronnie Chung, as a total fucking idiot. Ronnie Chung grew up in Hong Kong when it was still part of Q Britannia, or rather, when it was still leased by the United Kingdom from the People's Republic of China. He is to train us in all manner of combat. He is small and thick-set and scowls at almost everything. He begins our lessons not with press-ups or running, but with a lecture in the same room which Professor Derrick used to acquaint us with his genius. He leans on the lectern, doesn't like it, and shoves it out of the way. He sits down on the edge of the plinth, so that we have to crane to look at him. Looking at Ronnie Chung is never going to be a favoured pastime with anyone. He is not easy on the eye. He has broad shoulders and big, ugly knuckles and a wide, bald head. He cultivates a sneer. He has weighed us in the balance, and he is already appalled by the quality of the merchandise. What, Ronnie Chung demands, is the single most dangerous weapon used by most people in the course of a lifetime? A gun, suggests someone immediately, and Ronnie Chung makes a farting noise between his lips. A kitchen knife, someone else says. Ronnie Chung shakes his head. By the absence of faux flatulence, we deduce that this is, although wrong, at least wrong in a good way. Domestic objects, then. Rolling pins? Cleavers? 
axes? No, no, no. Someone gets lateral. The human body. Ronnie Chung holds up his hand. Stop. My body, Ronnie Chung says, is a lethal weapon. Yours is a sack in which you keep your vital organs. He flaps his hand. You're right. The body has a potential to be very dangerous, and when this response elicits a triumphant smile from his interlocutor, he adds, "Which is not to say I didn't notice that it was a suck-ass answer, and that you are a suck-ass." Ronnie waits. When it emerges that he has defeated us, he answers his own question. The automobile says Ronnie, a bludgeon consisting of several thousand kilos of metal traveling at speeds in excess of thirty miles per hour, dangerous and unskilled hands, which is most of them, but bloody lethal if you know a bit about how to use it. So, somewhat to our amazement, the first thing we learn is automotive tactical engagement in theory and practice. Suited to civil and urban warfare environments, it is an amazing amount of fun. We learn where you hit another car to make it spin out. We learn where to avoid pranging your own car in the course of an auto duel. We learn how to kill a car with sticks, chains, petrol, salt, guns, and another car. We get jolted around and occasionally set on fire in our training suits, and we have a ball despite the injuries. Car combat is like sparring. It's about speed, distance, and timing, and knowing what you have to hit to knock the other guy down. I'm moderately bad at it in a fun kind of way, and there are plenty of other people who are worse, including Richard P. Purvis and a woman by the name of Kitty who claims to have driven sticks since she was nine. We demolish a small fleet of compacts and saloons. And two sixteen-seaters just for variety. It takes three days. Right, says Ronnie Chung, when the last door handle falls to the dust and Riley Tench clamors victorious from a wrecked Nissan. Melee, because most of the point of this really has been to get us used to getting thrown around and messed up and not caring about it. So we move on to hand-to-hand. -to -hand, Which is more personal and more naked because there isn't a three-foot crumple zone between you and the enemy. This is the bit where it's important that the project has a good dentist. It does, although I am fortunate enough not to need her services more than once before I get back into the habit of moving my head out of the way before doing anything else. And thus life goes on for a while. I train. I learn and I live in a little green room at the bottom of George Copeson and Professor Derrick's anthill. Ronnie Chung lives on the level above, which is exactly the same, chair for chair, but he has two rooms side by side, which he has kicked through into one. He does not invite us into it, but once in a while we are required to meet him at his door so that we can run somewhere or tackle the assault course under fire. Every so often, I get a forty-eight leave, mostly because it's my turn, and occasionally because I am on the winning team in one of Ronnie Chung's bizarre exercises, such as the one where you are locked in a room with a selection of foodstuffs and required to make a weapon, 
The point of this is that a a weapon doesn't have to be something you hit someone with; it can be something they slip on or which gets in their eyes and hurts. B weapons are everywhere, and C sometimes weapons are not everywhere, or an improvised weapon is genuinely more trouble than it's worth, and you should just belt the other guy as hard as you possibly can in the head.